3, John chapter 3, forgot my regular glasses this morning, so I'm having to use some stand-ins. John chapter 3, we're going to look again here, start this morning at verse 16. Let's back up to verse 14 to get the context. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now we've been looking at this passage scripture for some weeks now in chapter 3. We see Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night and asking him questions and Jesus over and over again uh, teaches him, tells him uh, the truths concerning the new birth. <clears throat> he speaks to him in heavenly terms. And in verse 15, <clears throat> excuse me. In verse 15, Jesus gives the illustration of the brass serpent that Moses was instructed to put on a pole for the salvation of life for any Israelite who would look in faith to the serpent or look at it. Now, the reason for this was because of the sin of grumbling against God and grumbling against Moses And they didn't understand why Moses, by God's hand, had led them out into the wilderness. They were grumbling because even though God had miraculously taken care of them, giving them water and giving them food, they grumbled because they wanted something different. Sound like anybody you know? Human beings by nature, are grumblers, complainers. We're not satisfied with that which God gives us. Paul said that we should be content with food and clothing. If we we have shelter and food and, and clothing, those are the things that physical life are are in need of. Everything else is just, as we say, gravy. And so they grumbled against Moses and against God. And the fact is that the people, that God's people must trust God's word, even if they don't understand all that it's about. That's what the Israelites were really doing. They were not trusting that God would take care of them, having led them into the wilderness. They were guilty of disobedience 
and grumbling and having an unthankful spirit. They were under the condemnation of God and were being punished for their sin. They were uh, the object elevated before them was the emblem of their judgment. The serpent. Because serpents came into the into the camp and bit them and many died as a result. And so they were unable to rescue themselves. The poison of the serpents was deadly and there was no antidote for it. And they were urged to look at the serpent in order to receive life or to live. If we're honest, we can see ourselves in the Israelites grumbling and complaining and dissatisfied with the things God has been so kind to give us his love and his grace that has been showered upon us. Because of our sin, Jesus had to go to the cross. This was God's plan. In order that we would have life. And not just physical life, but eternal life. As Jesus says in verse 15. That brings us to verse 16. Through 18 as a, as a text. And I, I said last week I was going to do all three of these and that's, that's impossible. So I'm not going to be able to do that. I'll just this morning concentrate on verse 16 and next week we'll go to verses 17 and 18. But what a marvelous story this is. Nobody on earth could have dreamed up such a plan as God did in sending his son to die for the For sinful people. It's a marvelous story. Nowhere in the Bible is that wondrous story more told and more loved, more known than in John 3.16. It is described in various terms as the world's greatest text. uh, The greatest verse in the Bible. It's been described as an ocean of thought in a drop of language. Martin Luther Stated, I love this text beyond measure. Certainly a favorite of many, many believers. The ESV cites 24 English words in verse 16. And all are rich with meaning. There are 25 words in the Greek text. We're going to look at some of them. The text provides an obvious content. First... It says that there is a God. It is foolish to think otherwise. In fact, Proverbs 14.1 says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said, no God. Second, that this God, it tells us, is a God of love. This was so extraordinary among the gods of the Greeks. Because the gods of the Greeks had characters that were ruthless and hateful, toying with people like some plaything for a while and then destroying them at their will. This is the way the Greek mind thought of their gods. And now the scriptures tell us that this God is a God of love. It also tells us that this God has a son. And not only that, but this son is distinguished from all other sons 
that he has and that this son is the very essence of the father himself. That makes him different from all the created and procreated or adopted sons that he has. He is unique. He is radically distinctive from all others and without equal. Fourth, it says that God loves the world. To the Jewish mind, the love of God was reserved for them alone. The Jews hated the Gentiles. They hated the Greeks. And they believed that God loved them only. In fact, God had said to the Jewish nation in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. To the Jews, this distinguished them apart from all other people groups of the world. And we'll be discussing that word world here in just a moment. Now John reveals that God has a love for people of the world in general, of people in other nations, and people of other tribes, other languages, other groups, not just the Jews. Fifth, it tells us that God has a plan to save this world of other groups of people. This is where the love of God is seen most clearly. We understand, when we understand who we are and who God is, what we are and what God is, it is a wonder of wonders that He would save anyone at all. So here's how we're going to look at the passage. We'll look at the passage, uh, first of all, we see the fact in verse 16, God so loved. Second, we see the evidence of that, that God gave. And then the purpose, the purpose was to save. And then in verse 17, the proof was that God sent His Son, that is in the incarnation. Number five is the means of this of this saving is through the Son, through Him. And then the outcome is, in verse 18, that this world that He speaks of is not condemned. Not condemned. So let's look first at the fact. It says, For God so loved the world. <clears throat> now the little word for is there. To look back at verses 14, 15, what, what came before it, where Nicodemus spoke to, uh, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and told him the story of the brass or the bronze serpent. Four links the thought from 15 to 16 and tells us why God gave the eternal life. Verse 15 does not tell us that. Verse 15 just simply states the fact that whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 16 tells us why. It was because he loved. That's why we have eternal life. Because God so loved. That little word, so, 
is an adverb showing the manner and the degree of the love. What kind of love? How intense was this love? How far reaching was the love that he shown in giving his son? It was far, it reached far enough to save all sinners who would ever believe. It could be translated, God thus loved. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God thus loved the world. This love is an intense love that burned in God's heart. To use the anthropomorphism. It wasn't just any kind of love. The scriptures tell us this was the Love that originates from God and is shown to sinful people. It is the agape love, the agapao love, (coughs) that makes distinctions, choosing and keeping its objects, regardless of the object's characteristics, regardless of the object's actions. God does not love us based upon our actions toward Him. He loves us based upon his own free will and choice to love. This is the love that proceeds from God's own character and on God's own nature. It is intentional towards its object. And its object, according to verse 16, is the world. <clears throat> the word world is a grossly misunderstood Term as it relates to salvation and God's intention to save. It is important that we understand what God intended when He loved the world and gave His Son for it. The word, the Greek word here is the word cosmos, and we, we hear it all the time. In fact, I think there's a, there used to be a, uh, a very humanistic show on public television called Cosmos. If you've ever watched it, it's all about the earth and things, you know, animals and weather and events and things of that nature. <clears throat> this word, when taken in an evangelical light, is commonly misunderstood to mean Everyone or all people as in individuals or as in every single individual without exception. Sometimes it is used that way, but it is not used that way here. We use it, we use the word all the time, the word world all the time in our language, in our language. And we use it in different ways. We speak of the world of people. We speak of the world as in nations. We speak of the the world as in animal life. The world of animals. We speak of the the world in, in various groups of various description. And it's used in scripture that way as well. Many different ways the word world is used. For example... It is used to speak of the universe as a whole in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. 
the universe. For God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So there in that passage, the word world speaks of everything that exists. It is used to speak of the earth. That is terra firma, the earth, the planet. John 13 verse 1, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own, he loved those who were in the world to the end. It's also used to speak of the system that the world operates by. The, the things that order the world. For example, in John chapter 12, verse 31, now is judgment, the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all the systems, all the rule. The way the world works, he said, I'll give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. How foolish to offer someone something that already belongs to them. So it can mean the world system. The the word cosmos can also mean the whole of the human race, as in everyone individually. It can mean that. Listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. How many are under the law? Everyone. Individually. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. So it can speak of the whole of the human race. It can speak of... Humanity minus believers. Or we could say it can speak of unbelievers only. For example, John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, Jesus said, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Well, who's he talking about? Believers don't hate other believers. He's talking about the unbelieving world. Romans chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. What shall we say? Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how would God judge the world? In other words, if God were unrighteous in any way, He could not judge the unbelieving world. God has promised not to judge believers. It can mean Gentiles in contrast to Jews. Romans chapter 11, verse 12. Now, if their trespass, that is the Jews, if their trespass means riches for the world, see, different than the Jews, so it can mean Gentiles. And if if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, so he's talking about the Gentile world, it can mean Jews only. John 18, verse 20, Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. Well, who did he speak to? Did he speak to all the people that were living in Greece or Italy? 
or in the, in, in the northern parts of where Turkey is now? No, he spoke to the Jews. Those that were, those that were, where this, the world existed. I have always taught in synagogues and the temples where all the Jews come together. And he equates the word world, cosmos, with the Jews. It can mean believers only. John 1.29, the next day Jesus saw, <clears throat> the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You have to ask yourself the question, did Jesus take away the sin of every single human being on earth? If that were the case, no one would be in hell. That would be universalism, something the Bible definitely does not teach. That becomes even more clear when we see John 6 verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So 26 times he uses this word to refer to the earth. Three times he uses it to refer to the Jews and Gentiles specifically. Twelve times he uses it to refer to believers and unbelievers in the world or to all humanity. Three times he uses it to refer to the world system in particular. Thirty-one times he uses it to refer to the wicked without including believers. Which is the most common use, by the way. And eleven times he uses it, uses the word world, to speak of those whom God has chosen, God's elect, his chosen people. Now I want you to notice the words that whosoever believes in verse 16. And that indicates that he is talking about mankind. That is, not necessarily every single human being individually, but every tribe, every nation, every people group. If he were speaking about individuals, every single individual... It would mean that everyone would be saved. And that's not taught here, nor is it taught anywhere else. So let's compare some other scriptures that clearly indicate that the world is not the whole of the human race individually. Turn with me to these, if you will. Two of them are in John, one of them in Romans. John chapter 7, verse 4. John chapter 7, verse 4. Notice what he says. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be, his, to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. What would they have meant here? Would they have meant show yourself to every single individual on earth? 
No, that's not what what they meant. What they meant was show yourself to the Jews. Prove to the Jews that you are who you say you are. And the reason they said this was because this was his brothers and sisters that were saying this to him. And the reason they said it was because they didn't believe in him. Look at John chapter 12, verse 19. So the Pharisees, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now did they, does that mean that every single individual in the world went after Jesus or followed Jesus or were praising Jesus? Certainly not. They were speaking of the Jews in particular and not even all of them. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 8. Romans 1 verse 8. Paul Paul writes, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Does that mean that the faith of, of the Roman saints... Was the subject of conversation for every man, woman, and child in the world? Certainly not. He's using the word world in general. People of varying groups, ethnicities, tribes. The faith of this church went abroad and people were hearing of it. Now look at the passage again in chapter 3. You'll notice in the passage, the structure of this this verse comes in two parts. There is a, a main clause and a subordinate clause. Which really gives you the meaning of the word world in this passage. Notice that it is divided into two distinct Parts. The main clause says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's the main thrust of the verse. The main truth that God wants to get across. The subordinate clause gives the purpose for the main clause. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now that helps us a great deal to understand the verse and what God is saying and His intent in giving eternal life or salvation. The evidence, the evidence of God loving, the intent of God loving the world We find the evidence of that is in giving his only son, his only unique son. The old old King James says his begotten son. The purpose is given in the subordinate clause to show 
why and how he brings this intent to pass. And what are the results of it? So you have here a statement made and then a purpose result statement made with regard to the main statement. Follow with me if you, if you would please. I'm going to explain this the best I know how. This is how it works. We have two verbs used in verse 16 that establish possibility or probability in their action. Those two verbs are perish and have. Perish and have. They both elicit the, the idea of something possible or probable. Now, when you hear those words, possible or probable, do they not create in your mind some sense of doubt? If you said, if you asked me, are you going to go home after church and have dinner or lunch? And I said to you, well, it's possible. Maybe even probable. Would that clear all doubt away? No, you would be thinking, well, maybe he's going to eat and maybe he's not. Maybe he doesn't feel like eating. He said it's probable, so it's likely more than possible that he will. But it doesn't make it concrete, does it? I would have to say... I'm absolutely not going to eat lunch. Now you've got the idea. I've said it. It's a statement of concrete fact. I'm not going to eat. This is the way that this is put together. So that would be true in English that it it would raise some sort of doubt to use the words possible or probable. That's true in English, but it is not true in Greek. The Greek grammar removes all of the doubt in the possibility or probability of the words perish and have. It is a wonderful stroke of genius in the Greek language. Look at the word that. You see the word that in verse 16? For God so loved the world, that. The word that is preceded by the words perish and have. And the words perish and have have this idea of possible, probable. But when you, when, but when coupled with the word that as it is in the, in the original language, it takes away the idea of doubt and makes the phrase or the the clause concrete. It makes it absolute. So much better translation would have been, for God thus loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would never, absolutely ever, perish. 
Well, that changes it a bit, doesn't it? It's not that they might have eternal life. It's not that they should or could. It's that they will absolutely have eternal life. And they will never perish. Removes all the doubt and makes the purpose and its corresponding result absolute and sure. That's why we can say, even in this life, that Christ has saved me, has given me eternal life, and I will never be lost. I will never end up in hell. I will never be judged for my sin because my Savior was judged in my place. God gave Him for me, and now I have Him, and He's never going to let me go. It is no longer simply a possibility or a probability. It's sure. Now let me show you another example of that. You, if, you're, if you're questioning the possibility of this being true, look at Philippians chapter 2. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 and note verses 9 through 11. We have this same exact structure found in these verses. We have a main clause and we have a subordinate clause. Begin verse 9, Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There's your main clause. That's the main thrust of this Section of verses. So that. There you are. There's our little word. So that. At the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. That's the subordinate clause. And it states the purpose and the result of the main clause. So ask yourself the question in reverse. Why is every knee going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father? It is because God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. So because God gave him that name. The, the purpose and the result of him having that name is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it's not that they might confess. They are going to confess. They are going to bow the knee. Whether they want to or not, it will happen. Paul is not just stating God's intention. He is stating what God intends and carries out in the end. And it will happen. So if you take verse 16 like this. Then it says. That those who believe. Will absolutely have eternal life. And they will not perish. It's not going to happen. 
God's intent is to save people. And the result is that they're actually saved. And they actually are redeemed and will not be punished. If Christ came to make salvation possible for every individual in the world, and it is up to them to make the to make it effectual, then the, there's no problem with the world meaning everyone as in every individual. But God didn't do that. He didn't leave it up to man to make it effectual. God himself makes it effectual. We believe that Christ's atonement was effectual not from man's standpoint, but from God's standpoint. It's not what we do, it's what he did. That means... That God's work of salvation will accomplish the task that the Father intended for it to accomplish in saving sinners from every people group, every tribe, every language in the entire earth. We see it over and over. John 6, 37, 39, John 10, 15, 16, John 17, verse 2 and verse 12. Over and over and over again, God's intention is stated and the purpose and result of that is an actual salvation, not one that is just probable based on what somebody thinks or decides. It cannot mean that God's intention was to save every single individual on earth. If that were the case, if that was His intent then God failed miserably because every individual is not saved. There will be many, in fact, there will be many more lost and in hell than there are saved and in heaven. Now you put it all together, what you have is an effectual atonement of Christ that is stated in verse 16. And if Christ's atonement for sin was effectual and will accomplish the task of saving all those whom the Father calls, then the word world cannot mean everyone without exception. Rather, it means everyone with distinction. Christians are a distinct group. They are people whom God has sought, called, arrested, and saved. So the world here is the world of those who believe from every people group, every nation, every tribe, and every language. And the result is twofold. They will never perish. And they will be having, present tense, they will be having eternal life. I don't know what that does to you. But that, that humbles me to the, it makes me want to fall on my knees and just thank God for saving a sinner like me who has no, no reason to be saved other than what he did. I have nothing to boast in except the cross. And that's all. That's all you have. 
Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. <clears throat> now, I can hear the question. Someone may ask, well, does that mean that God doesn't love <clears throat> the, the world in general as in the peoples of the world? No, it doesn't mean that at all. God does love the peoples of the world. In fact, Matthew 5, verse 45 says, tells us that God loves his creation. He loves people. Listen to it. The Lord has commanded us to love our enemies. Why? So that we may be the sons, you may be the sons of your father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So God loves his creation. He loves the people that he's put on the earth. But he does not love them in atonement, in redemption, like he does those whom he calls to himself and saves. I'll give you an example. It is, a, it is a redeeming love. I can say to you, we have, we've lived in the same house now for 21 years. And we've had the same neighbors for that length of time. And I can tell you that I genuinely love my neighbors. Especially, especially the ones on the right of us, uh, depending on which way you stand, I guess. Facing the house, ones on the left facing the house. Uh, they're, they're, they've become just very dear to us as people. And over the years, we've seen God work in, in some of their hearts. And uh, some of them, we believe, have been saved in that family and maybe some yet to be saved, but... And we love our other neighbors too. Love them all. But I can tell you right now that I love my wife more than I love my neighbors. And if a house is on fire and my wife's in it and my neighbors are in it, I'm going to save my wife first. Because I love her differently than I love my neighbors. And that's the idea, folks, that God loves those whom he chose to give as gifts to his son so much that he chose them out of the masses of humanity. He chose them particularly as gifts for his son and his son came and saved them and he will keep them forever. Doesn't mean he doesn't care for the others. Otherwise, he'd just destroy them all instantly. He shows them common grace in just allowing them to live. But he shows atoning grace for those whom he chose for his son. And this is the world that Jesus is speaking of. The question here is, how has he loved you? Are you one of those whom he has loved with an everlasting love of salvation and eternal life? What does it mean to you that God gave his only son for a rotten sinner like you? It should humble you. It should make you thankful. It should make you want to please the one who saved you. And to serve him and glorify him because of the great love that he has shown.
giving us His Son. No one but an eternal, sovereign, everlasting God could come up with such a plan as this. May may we praise Him and glorify Him for His great love, which He has loved us in His Son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this Lord's Day. We pray that You would bless this teaching from John 3, that You would solidify in our hearts that You have saved us for eternity and nothing... Nothing, no power on this world, no power in heaven or under the earth or in the universe can change it. You gave your son because you loved us so that we would not perish, but absolutely have eternal life that's in him. We praise you for it. And thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen.